This episode of True Spies contains accounts of mental illness and medical malpractice. Listener discretion is advised. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Carter introduced himself and said, I have cocaine, I have heroin, I have everything. Are you into it? I said, yeah, of course. That's what brought me here. I'm interested in cocaine. I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies. Veil of Beads, part one. The method and the madness. Now, what I heard was sedate him. Sedate him. Two ominous words to begin this story. And of course, I had read about sedation. I knew that, no, it wasn't going to end well. So people came, they held my hand to my back. And at that, I didn't know whether you should struggle or you shouldn't struggle because you knew that the next thing was the injection. The injection? More threatening still. So they injected me. I started seeing the things that I was seeing became blurry and within a second I was gone. There are times in the life of an undercover agent when danger is a necessity to be endured. So how far would you go to make an investigation work? Would you risk your health, your life? What about your sanity? I woke up in, in the ward and I was trapped to my bed. And I'm like, okay, I'm still here, I'm alive, okay. Now how do I get my cameras in? It's true that for a spy, exposure to risk is the name of the game. But the man strapped to a gurney in a psychiatric hospital is no spy at least not in the classic sense of the word. My name is Anas Arimeyao Anas. I am an undercover journalist from Ghana. To understand how a journalist could find himself in an Accra psych ward, gathering up his wits like so many scattered marbles, first you'll need to park any preconceived notions about what it is that a journalist does. I've worked across the length and breadth of West Africa and across the world. I am usually undercover. When I go undercover, I make sure I find the bad guys. I put together solid evidence, hardcore evidence, of how they planned to commit that crime, how they executed that crime. I go to the court and testify against these bad guys. And usually, they end up in jail. For a journalist in the West, such active involvement in a story might raise eyebrows. But we're not talking about the West. My friends in the West, we've argued several times that perhaps the job of a journalist would be to just do a story and allow institutions to take over the issue and pursue them. My kind of journalism is different, but it's a product of my society. Unfortunately, I live in a third world country. I live in Africa. The institutions on our African continent are not as developed as what you have in the West. 
So I see nothing wrong with taking one step forward to meet my judiciary or meet my police service for us to come together and make sure that the bad guy is behind bars. Anas Aremiao Anas is a different breed of journalist, one who has a great deal in common with a spy. And for those practices, he has attracted his fair share of controversy. I am tagged as a controversial journalist because people just don't understand. They have defined journalism to suit their people. And I have no qualms with that. But let no person come to tell me how to do my journalism on my continent because I know my people and I know how to solve the problems of my people. Debates on methodology aside, what's beyond dispute is the impact of Anas's work. My journalism has led to a lot of people going to jail. Chinese sex mafia, a story I did where people from China were trafficked into Ghana. They were in jail for 45 years. My story on MV Benjamin Cocaine led to Ricardo being jailed eight years. My story about the cocoa smuggling in Ghana, where cocoa, which is the backbone of our economy, was being smuggled by no persons, but security agencies led to all of them going to jail a total sum of 16 years. That impact has seen Anas's name spoken in higher and higher places. So I switched on my phone, and here were a barrage of calls, a lot of people calling me, your name has been mentioned. My first one, really? By who? They said Obama. We see that spirit in courageous journalists like Anas, Arimea, Yeo Anas, who, who risked his life to report the truth. Just like that, a global reputation crystallized on the lips of a US president. But there are problems with a high profile in this line of work. Anonymity has always been my secret weapon. And celebrity is the exact opposite of anonymity. So just how, precisely, can a world-famous journalist protect his identity in this age of instantaneous information? The first thing that you are going to see if you try to Google me is to see me with my famous beats that I wear, African beats. And what it does is that it protects people from seeing my face. How refreshingly analog. A veil of beads suspended from a bucket hat. This is the mask that Anas has worn in his public appearances since the earliest days of his career. But a masked journalist come vigilante. That sounds more like comic book fodder than real life. And Anas's methods have become the subject of fierce debate across the African continent. His style of investigative journalism has attracted, you know, critics and lovers in equal measure. And him, you know, being the beaded guy. Solomon Sawanja runs the African Institute for Investigative Journalism out of Uganda. He is intimately familiar with the dangers facing young journalists in volatile contexts. I have dedicated the last 15 years of my life to investigative journalism. 
I've rattled feathers. I have annoyed top government officials. I have been arrested. My family has been put in harm's way because of my investigative journalism. As a journalist who has found himself on the wrong side of a jail cell more than once, Solomon can see the appeal of working behind a mask. I mean, that's first of all for his security. There's nothing as good as keeping your life secure, right? There's no story worth your life. They teach us in journalism school because a dead person cannot investigate. It also gives him a dangerous upper hand in investigations. But also it has enabled him to infiltrate the inner sanctum of different cartels and criminals, you know, so you don't know who you're seated with. You know, imagine me, whenever I'm going out to do any investigations, because I'm already exposed out there, they know who I am, I have to work through a third party. You know, unlike a nurse, a nurse who will get there and you'll not know who he is. He will disguise himself and so it helps him to really get facts and get evidence, you know, as him. He remains anonymous and Anas Anas remains in the wind. Up to now, people still are trying to imagine who this guy is. It is this freedom that Anas cherishes most dearly. So that anonymity you see behind that mask or beat, what I would call the conveyor belt that has led to churning out serious undercover investigative pieces. Because you don't know who we are. You don't know how I look like. And you never know when I knock on your door. And usually when I knock on that door, it is not nice. There is an entire community of criminals currently sitting behind bars who can attest to the truth of that statement. In more than a decade on the job, Anas has contorted himself into an unbelievable range of covers. So I have done some investigations where I was completely disguised as a sheikh from Saudi Arabia. I've also done some rocky disguises on the northern part of Ghana where I was painted to be part of a rock to monitor some people who were carrying drugs. Apart from that, of course, played roles, being undercover in prisons, become a lawyer in many other countries, become a woman. So it's a mixed bag. Painting yourself into a rock or dabbling in a little cross-dressing, maybe it all sounds like a good time. But let me assure you, this line of work comes with its own particular set of risks. Take an investigation into money laundering in the Seychelles. When I got to the airport, immediately I was randomly selected for a special checkup. But I was taken to the boss's office. And it was a young lady, almost my age. And she was like, okay, we've had a tip off that you are here to do espionage. And I'm like, no, I'm not here to do espionage. I'm a journalist. Knowing what you do about Anas's methods, you'll see how the two practices may have been confused in the eyes of this particular border guard. They asked, so how many hidden cameras do you have on you? And I said, okay, I had one. And I couldn't really remember because I was flying from other investigations. But apparently, I had others. 
I mean, who really keeps track of these things? One hidden camera, two hidden cameras. What's the difference? I had just forgotten that I had a cup that had a hidden camera in there. I had the watches. I had so many other things I had. So when the lady opened the bag and saw all that, for her, it was a confirmation that I was there for a purely espionage activities. Then came a very a tick-tall personality who came, handcuffed on my hand, and straight into cells. Well, that must be it then. Game over. Arrested with the charge of espionage and locked away in a foreign cell. And perhaps a NAS would still be there were it not for the unique persuasive abilities of his executive producer at Al Jazeera. My boss, Ron McKellar, was an Irish. And the head of national security for Seychelles was also an Irish. So I guess the two of them just took the matter up, discussed the matter. And then they said, OK, we are going to release you. Just one in a long, long line of close shaves. The truth is, Anas has made a career of putting himself in danger's direct line of sight, pressing ahead where others might give up. In this run of True Spies, you're going to discover what makes this most peculiar undercover operative tick, what drives him from risk to risk, and what would it take to make him stop. It's the story of one man and the ripple effects of his perseverance across the African continent and beyond. But it begins close to home, in Ghana's capital city of Accra, in the year of 2010. So I was a young journalist, um, and uh, I had this pretty girlfriend of mine who was a nurse, and she told me one evening that, look, I think some real horrible things were happening within the Accra Psychiatric Hospital. Anas's girlfriend told him of a culture of malpractice, an institution lousy with abusive staff, thieves, frightened patients. At the center of it all, a ring of drug dealers, effectively running the show. In other words, an explosive story waiting to happen. She suggested that Anas may want to get inside the hospital to take a closer look. And I'm like, that would be interesting. Infiltrating a psych ward with a reputation for malpractice. Sure, interesting might be one word for it. But even the gun ho Anas wanted to do his due diligence before hurling himself into the unknown. First, he spent a few days casing the hospital under the guise of a taxi driver waiting for his next customer. What he saw was a monolithic compound spanning an entire city block, the whole thing guarded by high walls and barbed wire. The reality of spending time inside such a place began to dawn on Anas. I called my team of doctors, then now Professor Alex Dodu. I spoke to him and said, look, this is what I want to do. He said, this can be dangerous because when you get in, you are going to be going through the treatment and all that. Ah, yes. The thing about psychiatric hospitals? Psychiatric drugs. A bombardment of them as soon as you get through the doors. It looked as though this would be the price of admission for the investigation. Anas's doctors advised him to do his research. If he wanted to be admitted, 
he would need to convince the facility that he needed urgent care. I read quite widely. I knew exactly the symptoms I needed to take to the hospital and what to tell the doctor on duty. Anas already had a name for his cover, Musa Akolgo. In the build-up to his investigation, he left his hair unwashed and practiced a certain set of mannerisms and tics. When he arrived at the foreboding metal gates of the compound, he was as prepared as he could be. I got an uncle of mine, who is a colleague, who took me that fine morning. Of course, I knew the abnormal behavior that I had to show, so I made it manifest. Whilst I've met the doctor, he asked me my date of birth. I gave him the current date of the day as my date of birth, and he said, no, that cannot be your date of birth, and I swore everything that it was my date of birth. Disorientation, check. How about throwing some delusional fantasies into the mix? I remember telling him that he's an angel and I see him wearing white and he was pointing out to me that but this dress that I'm wearing is not white. I said, no, you can see that it is white. Now, what I heard was sedate him. Yeah, that'll do it. You already know what comes next. The restraining, the struggle, the injection. Then, boom, out like a light. When Anas wakes up inside the ward, he wants to hit the ground running. But that's easier said than done. For one thing, he's strapped to a bed. Even when I got up, I was very hungry. I requested for food, but felt very drowsy. And I knew that I didn't get in there to be drowsy. I needed to have the right attitude to be able to get my story together. Of course, sedation was always on the cards, and Anas had come prepared. I had carried in there caffeine-oriented drugs that was supposed to correct the drowsiness because of the interactions I had with my doctors. The drugs that will be given to you will be drowsy, it will keep you this way and that way, but this is what you have to take to alert you. But balancing out the effects of a megadose of tranquilizers was never going to be as simple as that. There were problems with that because I was sitting up when I was supposed to be sleeping and sleeping when I was supposed to be sitting up. And sometimes a long period seemed to me as a very short period and a short period seemed to me as a very long period. This was a confusion that was ongoing in my head. Irrespective of the turmoil in his mind, Anas had a job to do. He had to document everything taking place in the psychiatric hospital. And to do that, he needed his cameras. Getting the cameras in was not the big deal because all I needed to do was to let my girlfriend bring it and to let some of my assistants also come and visit and bring it. Simple enough, but how to hide them once they were in his possession? In those days, we were allowed to use Walkman. So I just place it where the Walkman is. And the nurses are not curious to come and find out what kind of Walkman you're using. People didn't really understand how a hidden camera looks like, so it was quite easy. Suffice to say, the staff of Accra's psychiatric hospital were not exactly on high alert to the risk of potential intruders. After all, who in their right mind would willingly enter such a place? In fact, guards were down all over the hospital. 
Ines quietly began to seed word that he wanted to purchase drugs to his fellow patients. He expected it would take some time to get any leads. Drug dealers don't tend to give themselves up easily on the outside. But this wasn't the outside. I anticipated that I would meet the cocaine syndicate in my third week. But fortunately or unfortunately for me, I met my cocaine syndicate the very end of the first week. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Barely enough time to relearn how to think straight after the ordeal of a mission, and Anas was already coming face to face with his mark, a charismatic orderly named Carter. Carter was a cocaine person and said, Hey, I've heard of you. We have a meeting 7 p.m. in this particular room. Can you come? A break in the investigation, perhaps earlier than Anas would have liked, but now he'd been offered an in. He couldn't squander it. I knew that tonight I had to do everything possible to indicate to this group that I was into drugs. The evening rolls around. Anas makes his way to the meeting point and finds Carter and his associates waiting for him. Carter introduced himself and said, I have cocaine, I have heroin, I have everything. Are you into it? I said, yeah, of course. That's what brought me here and I'm interested in cocaine. If you've listened to some of our previous true spies, you'll know that in some Western countries, there are strict rules against an undercover agent partaking in controlled substances. But Anas is a lone agent, and the only code governing his behavior is his determination to catch his prey. So they gave me to, to try and see the quality. Of course, I had rehearsed the answers. I said it was great, it was good. Ah, that's the stuff. Nothing like a little sharpener to wash off the stress of a week on the psych ward. Anas projected the picture of the habitual user. Carter was satisfied and agreed to sell him cocaine. Deal done. Anas made his excuses, 
safe in the knowledge that the entire exchange had been caught on camera. But all the while, the cocaine was coursing through his body. The effect it was having on me was severe because I'm someone who is not into alcohol or any other substance. Now imagine I was taking this caffeine-oriented drugs, I was under sedation, I was doing cocaine. So it was difficult for the body to put this together. So I was shaking and I knew that it wasn't working well for me. Heart racing, head pounding, tongue growing heavy in his mouth. It was all Anas could do to make it back to his bed in the ward, where he kept a mobile phone that his girlfriend had smuggled in for him, for emergency use only. So I pressed the red button, called my doctors, who helped me get in and told them, look, I think it's a problem now. You need to help me out. Anas relayed the cocktail of drugs he'd been exposed to in his short time in the hospital. The sedatives, the stimulants, the cocaine. He told them his body appeared to be shutting down. Then Doc recommended that it means that you have to come for detoxification. Getting yourself committed to a mental institution is one thing, but finding a way out without blowing your cover, that's another. I went and applied for something they call parole within the hospital. A family emergency, totally unavoidable. You understand, of course. And the same uncle who brought me in came and told them that he was taking me to a funeral. Temporary leave of absence granted. Hurried footsteps out of the ominous compound. Metal gate clanging behind them. An idling car waits. So I sat in the car and straight I was driven to the house of my doctor. And then we started the detoxification immediately. For the first time in a week, a sense of clarity returned to Anas. The extent of what he put himself through was beginning to dawn. It was after the second day of detoxification that my doctor told me that I don't think this is safe for you. You shouldn't go. It would be the easiest thing in the world to bow out now. The temptation must be overwhelming. How can a journalist go somewhere? He's already filmed some of the evidence. He's got everything in place. He's met the cocaine syndicate. And you are telling him not to go back. The job ought to be completed. So I protested. He protested. Maybe I wouldn't do what I did in 2010, but I insisted. There's a certain degree of hardiness that comes with youth. For better or for worse, at this stage in Anas's career, backing out with a job half done simply wasn't an option. The very next day, his uncle returned him to the Accra Psychiatric Hospital. Continued filming, and I'm glad I did because I discovered many other things. As it turned out, the network of drug-dealing orderlies was just the tip of the iceberg. Over the following weeks in the Institute, through the fog of sedatives, Anas documented increasingly distressing activities. Staff were beating patients, and people were being chained. People were dying out of very curable diseases. The food items within the prison was being stolen by prison inmates, and I bought some, filmed them on camera and all that. An entire ecosystem of criminality, 
built around the exploitation of society's most vulnerable people. This represented an abject failure in the hospital's duty of care. To the extent that a patient had even died, and the staff didn't know. And he had died and the body had decomposed for many weeks, and people didn't know. A body left to rot in a ditch on hospital grounds. When a nurse finally checked out of the hospital, he left with the most damning evidence imaginable. The kind of evidence that could detonate a bomb in Ghanaian society, which is precisely what happened. When Anas published his story in the new crusading guide a month later. The impact was great. When it came out, the then president, John Evans Atamils, visited the place. It's the first time a sitting president had stormed a psychiatric hospital to see what's wrong with the people. The first time a sitting president had increased the, how much they spend on food. The first time a sitting president was saying that, let's have a real look at the drugs that are given to them. Some of them are outmoded, let's get the best ones. And I thought this was brilliant. Without my investigation, we couldn't have gotten there. Perhaps here is where you'll find the method in Anas's madness. Even at this early juncture in his career, he was committed to a form of journalism that could not be ignored. Quite early in my journalistic life, I did a lot of reading. And the reading was tailored more towards impact of journalism. And I've seen people who have done journalism all their lives, and they had very little impact. Society forgets so quickly. And I had also read about what the people on the other side who fight journalists, the approaches that they use, that sue you through the courts, they will either physically attack you or they will bribe you. Now, I wanted that kind of journalism. That was a knockout punch. That doesn't give you any chance of survival in the ring with me. With his investigation into the Accra Psychiatric Hospital, Anas landed that knockout punch. Yes, he had endured insanity to pull it off, but in the end, the reward outweighed the risk. The bad guys were caught, and the good guys lived to tell the tale. The same cannot be said of every investigation that Anas has leapt into. The community had experienced their people their kith and king being picked up by strange people and then they found their bodies in this forest. When Anas is called to the backwoods of Malawi to investigate a spate of ritual murders, things go terribly wrong. They ransacked all our cameras and everything, took them away, and now they started hitting us. Passions had been inflamed. So people were throwing knives, people were throwing stones. My friend Darius was bleeding seriously from the head. I had gotten a stab from my back with a knife. And Anas is forced to truly consider whether he is prepared to die for his work. The attacks intensified because some people had made up their mind that they were going to kill us in the valley. We were all bleeding, but we held onto each other and climbed. I saw a very big stone that hit my head. I'm Vanessa Kirby. That's next time on True Spies.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 